Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jane Pathakoukos, the DeWitt Wallace Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a Washington-based public policy think tank, as well as the weekly host of the podcast, The Political Economy with James Pathakoukos, and author of the regular must-read newsletter, Faster Please. I should say that he's a refreshing voice on the American right, who's eschewed the Trumpian turn and continues to advance an ambitious, positive-sum, Reaganite vision of economic growth and dynamism. I'm grateful to speak with him today about these changes in American conservatism, why he thinks upwing and downwing are better ways to understand our current political moment than traditional notions of left-wing and right-wing, and what he thinks the political salience is of a, quote, politics of progress. James, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Ah, oh, Sean, I'm delighted to be out. Thanks. In 2014, you and others, including some colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, came to be associated with an intellectual movement known as, quote, reform conservatism. The basic idea was to modernize the conservative policy agenda to reflect new and emerging policy issues facing the American electorate. As you wrote for Vox in 2016, quote, what we got instead was Trump's protectionist white identity appeal a bizarro version of the Reformicon agenda, unquote. Let me start with the two-part question, James. First, what was the key insight of the reform conservatives? And second, why do you think you failed to find political traction? Well, I think the key insight were that the, the basic fundamental principles uh, of modern conservatism um, about the importance of economic freedom uh, to creating a world uh, not just of or creating an America not just of you know faster economic growth, but hopefully more opportunity uh, for everybody, that those principles needed to be supported by modern policies, that we just could not take what was perhaps the right formula in 1980 and necessarily and just apply it sort of um, unknowingly to uh, modern times. And that is so that I mean, broadly, that is what uh, the sort of the reform conservatism movement was trying to get. Um, now, Donald Trump also <laughs> believed that you could just not take those old ideas, uh, though, of course, I think he never uh, much believed in those old ideas uh, to begin with. Uh, so he presented a update of conservatism, which was very, very different. Uh, that really uh, not just redefined the policies, of conservatism, but also what that meant. And it was uh, 
it was a very, and it's you know, no surprise to your listeners, it's a, uh, a drawbridge up kind of conservatism. Uh, it's a very insular, inward looking uh, one that I think appeals to sort of the worst uh, in people. Uh, and that is what we uh, got. I think, yeah, as far as, and the reason I think there was some, I, I think you can blame the financial crisis, creating an environment, uh, the following period of slow growth, uh, concerns about China, uh, unappealing Democratic nominee in 2016, uh, all those factors together uh, created a different kind of reform uh, that I certainly uh, would have preferred. As I mentioned, you are a powerful champion of economic growth and dynamism. Your newsletter is called Faster Please for a Reason. But one gets a sense that Americans in general and a lot of conservative voters in particular have come to flinch in the faith of growth and dynamism and instead seek out security and stability. Am I misreading things? If not, what do you think is going on? Well, I, I, I think we've had a very long period, uh, maybe a half century, where there's been a message, uh, I think, coming from some politicians, I think from the media, from our culture, that progress is dangerous. And whatever benefits progress might give us, the downsides, whether they're, whether they're the environment, whether they're rising inequality, uh, outweigh the upsides. And I think slowly that has really worked our way, uh, its way into uh, our consciousness. And, you know, to, and to, again, to an extent that it's, you know, you know elites making, uh, making the case for growth, like, you know, Silicon Valley. I mean, it wasn't, that, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where you had Republicans would say, we're uber Republicans, you know, as in the, as in the ride sharing company loves, but now, but now of course, Silicon Valley is bad to a lot of the Republican party because it represents, you know, these, you know, these, you know, crazy left-wing Californians. And of course, for a lot of Democrats, they don't like Silicon Valley either because they have, they're suspicious of corporate power. And so to the extent that you identify, you know, the technology sector with, with progress, at least in that particular case, it makes it much harder to talk about progress because people will say, well, that's, isn't that, isn't that Silicon Valley talk? They, you know, they want us, they want us all to live in mile high skyscrapers and eat mealworm dinners. And, you know, they, they don't, they don't, they don't care. They don't, you know, they don't care about the average person. They're going to create some brand new world. So I think there's always an inherent concern about change. I mean, there's the, there's a cognitive bias of loss aversion, which we feel losses much more deeply than we feel gain. So I think people sort of arguing for change always have that, that burden. It's just, it's easier. I mean, it's easier to predict how chat GPT will cost jobs than it is what new jobs will be created. So I think, again, if you, if you think that faster economic growth, more technological progress is what's necessary, not just to solve big, big problems, uh, whether it's climate change or, uh, or you know global poverty that that's great but you also have to make sure you also have to you know, get over that hump that people just will worry about the uh uh the downside and i certainly think like it's very important that we make that case and i try to make it my own own small way because there are big problems and big challenges and we can i like to say uh i'm not arguing for creating a utopia but i just i would just like a better world that sort of incrementally gets better that leads me to your must-read newsletter from just over a year ago. I should say, 
James, that I, I checked and it came out on March 23rd, 2022. We're having this conversation on March 28th, 2023, in which he wrote, quote, the politics of progress isn't really about left or right. It's about up, unquote. What did you mean? Is there room for a new left-right synthesis rooted in growth, dynamism, and even techno-optimism? And if so, are there any current political figures who represent a, quote, politics of progress? You know, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the fool's gold of American politics is, is talk about a third party. I, you know, when it's the summer and there's not much going on, that's a great time if you're a political writer. Let's write about a third party. Uh, and I suppose if you're if it's the summer and you want to write about a third party, you can write about uh, creating a new sort of pro-progress drawbridge down kind of political party that would take the um, sort of the pro-progress folks in both parties. The people listen when uh, when Democrats and members of the Biden administration talk about wanting to increase the productive capacity of the economy. That's great. That's that's the kind of talk I like to hear. Uh, and those people who, who think think that way, maybe their policies aren't exactly what I would want. But if you're thinking that way, that you think it's important that the U.S. economy is more productive, uh, great. Listen, we can have a, we can have a fantastic conversation. So I would like to think that there's enough of people, and they've been so repelled by the populists in both parties who tend not to think that way. And they these populists may agree, disagree on cultural issues, and I think that's why it's hard to create a third party. But the Bernie Sanders voters and the Donald Trump voters, there's a lot of agreement on trade. There's a lot of agreement on immigration. They both have a lot of hostility toward, toward major corporations. But theoretically, you could see like parties. I mean, parties can change a lot. Listen, it wasn't that long ago that you had the uh, president of the United States, Bill Clinton, talk about the era of big government was over. Uh, you know, It's back. So parties can change a lot. And I, I think it's still likely that May, the main parties stay kind of where they are, but I, I hope that the sort of the pro-progress portions of both can eventually become bigger and more influential, though that's, that may not entirely be the case right now, particularly among the Republicans. That's a good segue to my next question. In a forthcoming book entitled The Conservative Futurist, you write of what you describe as the great downshift in economic growth in technological progress, which has contributed to economic stagnation declining aspirations, and a popular culture fixated on catastrophe. Help us understand this insight. What is the great downshift? How did it come about? And how is Western society's real problem not too much growth and dynamism, but too little? If you go back into those immediate post-war decades in 1950s and 1960s, even though there was a lot of pessimism, uh, coming out of World War II, oh, we're going to go back into another Great Depression. That obviously didn't happen. We saw um, a an we saw amazing inventions. We saw the beginning of the atomic age. We saw the space age. You know, we saw uh, all you know whether it's you know television. And, you know, every home, America. There was a ton of of progress, and people back then thought that's that's sort of the new permanent normal. That what we saw in the fifties and particularly the nineteen sixties. That's what we're going to get in the 70s and 80s forever, that we had so permanently solved the problem of rapid economic growth. Uh, and then and then it stopped. Uh, you know, I think you can make a good case that the sort of the statistical stop was really and that downshift 
was in the mid night was in 1973. I can you know hi- highlight some numbers, and it was very shocking. If I don't know if you've ever heard of the book Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, uh, bestseller. Fu- I mean, it was sold three million copies, uh, and he and he warned that things are going to be there's going to be so much abundance, so much economic growth that we were all going to be driven crazy by it. The real shock was that that didn't happen. And you ended up with decades, you know, the economy would speed up and slow down, but nothing like what they expected uh, in those immediate post-war decades. And I think there are sort of these big macroeconomic reasons why that happened. Um, but part of it is stuff that we did, that we as a society made the decision to not focus on economic growth, to focus on other things, to focus on uh, environmental regulation. It's not the whole story. Uh, but I think it's part of the story. We made a, we decided that, you know, maybe we shouldn't spend so much. I mean, wh- what was the big national project in the United States that, f- that came after Apollo? Fine. We, we won the space race. You know, we could have kept the space race going, but we didn't. But was it followed by anything? What was the next big sort of goal that would both inspire people, uh, get people excited about science and technology? Uh, there really wasn't anything. Uh, so I think this the combination of sort of creating barriers to progress and then also not doing some of the things that we need to progress, like lots of science research, to name two, contributed significantly to sort of this overall downshift in technological progress and economic growth. And then we just stopped believing it was possible. Um, I think it's important what we believe about the future. I think. I think having some sort of, not necessarily a specific image, but an idea that we can create a tomorrow that we'd want to live in. I mean, that's that's just not what we do anymore. I mean, it, it drove me crazy that we saw that all the things going on right now with AI, uh, space, we have CRISPR, um, we have this nuclear fusion breakthrough. That the big new big budget shows. Uh, on, I, I th- I'm not sure if it's Apple TV or Netflix, is about environmental catastrophe. It's about environmental catastrophe. It's have nothing. It's like nothing else is going on, and it's that same playbook. I mean, you could write a story about environmental catastrophe and also about how we can solve it, but I don't think that's what that show is going to be about. I think it's. I think it's going to be more sort of disaster CGI porn, and that's what we keep getting. You know, and. To be sort of soaking in that as a society, decade after decade, I think we see the result of it. People are just very pessimistic about not just about the future, but about what we can do to alter that future. A ton of insight there, James. And we'll come back to your observation about the role of popular culture. But before we get there, I want to take up your forthcoming book's title, which may seem a bit oxymoronic to some listeners. Like, yeah, it's like military intelligence. Right? <laughs> exactly. You yourself are a Christian with a big family who at some level lives a traditional lifestyle, if I understand correctly. Yet in your political economy, you're a champion for progress. How do you reconcile these tensions that run through you and conservatism more generally? We'll take, e- we'll take each of those words sort of in turn. Uh, but I'll start with the second one first. Um, I think there are big problems facing society. I think, you know, whether, again, whether it's ones that directly affect us sort of in, in, in uh, 
Western, you know, rich countries, you could, you could, you could point to climate change, whether it's ones that sort of affect people in poorer countries, poverty, it's, it's, it's risks, it's risks of a big asteroid hitting, hitting the earth. I think those are things that everyone should sort of be concerned about. And much like it's impossible to sort of figure out what the next great new jobs are. I don't know all sort of the opportunities and cool, interesting things we can create, but I would like my children to have maximum opportunity and have the max and live in a society with a maximum amount of resources to create, to make their dreams come true. Cause that's, that's what an economy is. An economy is able to take dreams and turn them into sort of crystals of imagination, physical objects. That's what an economy does. So I wanted an economy that can do that more efficiently. So that is the future. I want to make sure they have maximum opportunity and that opportunity is snuffed out by a big asteroid hitting them. Um, so, I, so for my children, so I think that part of it, that part of the future fits in uh, very well. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying... In the book, you're not going to find millions of different scenarios and millions like here's what here's what you know chat GPT can be in this year. I, I get that a little bit. But what my version of futurism, this really gets rid of the conservative part, is creating an environment or an ecology of possibility that we make the decisions as I mean, some things we're never going to be able to control, but to the extent that what we can appropriately control, creating that environment for growth. An opportunity, you know, that is sort of my kind of conservative futurism. Uh, I think it was you know Edmund Burke talked about the obligation that conservatives have both to the past and the future. So I think it's very natural that for if you're a conservative to think about the future and the obligation that you owe to build upon the achievements to that we value the achievements of the past, but that we also want to build upon them. So even though it does have that oxy humorous oxymoronic aspect, we hope it will make for a, a winning, best-selling title. Uh, that, uh, that that to me they actually do uh, do go together. I mean, one of my favorites, um, if I can, is 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 uh, uh, the late futurist Herman Kahn, who is probably best known to audiences as kind of this cold warrior. He wrote a lot of. He, he was a nuclear war theorist. He popped up in a couple of 1960 moves, you know, movies uh, where they had characters based on him, including Doctor Strange, Love and Failsafe. But later in his career, he became this this super optimistic kind of techno capitalist futurist. And while he did a lot of traditional futurist things like doing scenario planning, fundamentally his futurism was one about create, you know, again, creating the foundation for growth. And if like if you could get that right. And you could just make a few good decisions as a society, you are probably going to be okay. Uh, so that's sort of my version of uh, future. Like I don't have like a GDP forecast for the year like 2089 or anything. Um, so hopefully it'll be faster. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub 
Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, that's great. It sort of relates, I think, James, to your observations about the impetus behind reform conservatism. I think it was Reagan who said he didn't want to go back to the past. He wanted to go back to the past way of looking towards the future. And it, it seems to me, as you say, that idea is entirely compatible with the conservatism, particularly a North American conservatism, which has come to distinguish itself from the kind of blood and soil conservatism of Europe through most of contemporary history. To come back to another one of your earlier answers, is there reason to think that we're on the cusp of coming out of the great downshift? And if so, what technological developments give you the most cause for optimism? I will not be giving investable advice. I will not tell you uh, the proper ETF, uh, mutual funds to invest in. But I, I think there is, we've, so we've had this long half century of really, I think, relative, I mean, there's been progress, but I think of relative disappointment. We had like the brief, like late 90s boom, which which back then people thought, ah, that's it. We fought, This is the end of the downshift or the great stagnation. Uh, and then that that faded away. So I'm hesitant, but yet I'm really, really optimistic that, we've, that we have this, this cluster of technologies in, in AI slash machine learning, now slash machine learning slash generative AI, uh, uh, genetic editing, CRISPR, massive, massive advance. These, these space dreams of the 60s, like, like we can now make them happen. We've had this huge decline in launch costs. I don't think... Most people are are fully aware of that and that you have private companies who want to, like many of them, who want to be part of building multiple space stations. Uh, huge advance. The billions are flowing into nuclear fusion startups. And we had this huge leap forward and uh, huge advances in geothermal. So all these, all of which are like sort of the cla- these cla- these technologies, many of which were sort of the dreams of a half century ago. And had we kept on it, maybe we'd be a half century further along, better late than never, I guess. But that cluster of technologies, to me, seems so potentially powerful um, that, that I think if we don't screw it up, if we continue, if we make good decisions, if we don't, we don't strangle these technologies sort of in their infancy, that we continue to do what we sh- government serves a role, which is investing in areas it should invest, basic research, maybe some applied research uh, that we think hard about regulations. Are they going to be worth it? Will they? Will there be more downside to stopping progress? Uh, are, are we are, are we creating regulations that, that assume the worst? And are we operating from sort of that launching point? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think now is a if it. This is our third swipe at it. We had we had the swipe at it in like the late 60s, then in the late 90s. Now here we are again, where we could really take a tremendous leap forward. Listen, there's still going to be problems, but I'd rather be dealing with a different set of problems, not with the same old problems. Do you think climate change and the goal of an energy transition can be part of a politics of progress? Or is it merely about protecting against the downside of climate change and therefore lacks the charismatic quality of a vision of progress? I think the issue of climate change is presented as avoiding something bad. 
which is one reason why you have people have to create a worst case scenario about climate change in order to sort of sell people on policies. That is does not that does not seem to be working particularly well. What gets people excited, I think, is you know a abundant like being able to generate lots of energy inexpensively that we can that can power whatever we can imagine. I hate to think, and I'm not I'm not a crypto expert. And I'm not sure the future of these cryptocurrency technologies, but I don't want to have to not pursue them because I'm worried about how much energy they consume. I don't want that to be part of the equation. I don't want people saying um, we need to scale back our ambitions again because those ambitions will use too much energy. We we need to like we need to not create a, as Elon Musk would say, a multi-planetary civilization because we couldn't figure out how to power it. I don't want that to be a factor. Um, so so I think producing abundant, clean energy that can power a, a much larger global economy, a high energy planet, to me, sounds like a much more attractive vision of what tomorrow can be than saying that we need to, we need to live less well. Um, we need to have our children have to have less ambition than we had because we need to use less energy. That sounds like an absolutely terrible message that's going to persuade only the real hardcore people. What can policymakers do to revitalize science? How do we ensure that future Caitlin Carreco's aren't lost under the weight of science bureaucracies and self-selecting peer review processes? When I talk about spending more, um, it's not like we don't spend a lot of money, particularly here in the United States. We spend, <laughs> spend a lot of money on science. So why I think we need to spend more, I think it is incumbent on people who do want to spend more, talk about how do we get more bang for the buck, even if we want more buck. And clearly you have, you have systems which are overly bureaucratized. Uh, not, a lo- not, a lot of, not a lot of innovation as far as how we do science. That's what was so interesting. Uh, about the pandemic is that we started thinking about that. Oh, how can we get these vaccines developed into market really fast? So we create this operation warp speed. Uh, and that kind of sort of necessity is the mother of invention uh, thinking. We need a lot more of that. So whether it is thinking a lot harder about where else we can apply that operation warp speed model, where else can we apply mar- models that like we've seen in uh, DARPA uh, using things like, you know, changing, you know, the uh, how we, uh, um, how we distribute funds from the government, um, you know, perhaps change the peer review process, lotteries. We need sort of, an, you know, an innovation in science of doing science. Uh, so I think that need that needs to be absolutely a part of it. So the good, so so the good ideas don't get lost, and we have a very cautious uh, science research system. And I think that I think again, I think that's part of it. And I would make it incumbent. That if that before we spend a lot more money, that if they want to spend more money, that needs to be part of it. Those two things need to go hand. And I think that's and I think that's ultimately the only way you can really sell those kind of spending increases. Uh, James, if I may just follow up, you lamented um, the loss of the Apollo project and and uh, the failure of American policymakers to conceptualize a replacement. What do you think of the growing interest in so-called missions or challenges as a basis for or- orienting or organizing um, 
uh, science and, and, and R&D public spending, are, are those worthwhile exercises? Or do they risk becoming um, kind of top-down, centrally planned models of, of public investment? I think, I think they can work. I think you need to be cautious about them. I think they need to be in areas where sort of time is of uh, the essence. I think that's why I mean, climate change ends up being like one of the best cases because if you think it's if you think it's a real problem, uh, and we don't have unlimited time, then yes, then maybe you want to start thinking about a a a, a moonshot for a carbon capture technology. Um, thank goodness, I mean, a lot of these technologies, there's a lot going in on the private sector, so it's not as if you have to stop start from zero. Uh, so there's even with let's say take an area like. Uh, advanced geothermal. There's a lot going on in the private sector. When I when I talk to those people, they say, "Yeah, but government could still help us by doing more research on, you know, uh, material science for drill bits or, or or what have you." So there's still a lot government uh, can do without even creating a a big uh, a, a necessarily a big moonshot. But there might be some moonshots we should have. Uh, I mean, space is obviously another one where there's where the economic case isn't as clear or obvious. Um, or immediate. Uh, I mean, I would want government's going to have to be part of any sort of an initial probably Mars colonization. So, I mean, so there are moonshot ideas out there. Uh, and there again, there could one of the favorite stories is that this you mentioned Reagan. Uh, after the Challenger shuttle blew up in 1986, that that actually blew up on the day of President Reagan's State of the Union. So they had to cancel the address. And so a week later, he finally gave it. And of course, he started by talking about uh, the hero, the hero astronauts. And then he talked about how we were still going to go forward. We were not going to cancel the mission. Uh, We were going to continue to go forward. And then he talked about something he called the Orient Express, which was going to be a space plane that was going to go 25 times the speed of sound that would be go, able to go from Washington to Tokyo in like 20 minutes or something. I forget the exact number. And he spent a lot of time talking about that. Now that's, that's a, now that's the kind of, you know, that's now we, we don't currently have that and Bill Clinton canceled it, but you know, why? Because it costs $2 billion. doesn't seem like a lot of money right, right now, but I mean, that's, the attitude and direction that when we, you know, when we have a problem, fine, we have a problem, we solve it, we move forward, then we solve the next one, then we solve the next one. Too often, I think there's a problem. That's it. We're done. We're not gonna. We're not gonna solve it. We're gonna retreat. So I think fundamentally, I'm talking about a politics, not just the sort of progress, but to frame it like this: no longer a politics of retreat. And I feel like there's been a lot of politics of retreat and stasis at best. Does a renewed great power competition with China help or hinder your vision and agenda for greater progress? How do you think about the place of post-war globalization as a cause and effect of your story? And what will happen if we revert to some form of globalized political economy? Well, I'm certainly uh, worried about a you know, about less productive economies, less efficient economies, uh, where 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 you don't have countries taking advantage of their of their of, of what they do best and compete with each other. Uh, we love competition. Uh, competition brings out the best of us and also in, in countries. So I'm very worried about this sort of retreat from globalization 
Uh, and obviously, sort of the China, this brewing China tech cold war is part of it. So sort of the downside is I worry about us becoming more insular looking and being less willing to trade with other countries, less willing to accept talent from other countries. That That's bad. The plus side, assuming it doesn't turn into a war, is that it's very easy to make the case for doing pro-growth things if you use China as sort of the boogeyman or as a reason for doing things. Like, you know, if China is spending money on AI, how can we not spend money on AI? Of course, the concern is, they haven't been very productive in many ways and some of their emerging technology sort of frontier pushing technology. So I don't think we want to copy that model. Uh, but thinking hard about competing with a geopolitical rival on the technological frontier and what we should do, and frankly, what the West should do to compete. And I think that's thinking hard about what our inherent strengths are. And I think our inherent strengths are open societies where people are rewarded for effort. Um, I think now we're seeing that China is creating society. I, I just don't see how a authoritarian slash totalitarian surveillance state is ultimately going to be a great place for creative and imaginative people to prosper. That does not seem like an ecology for growth. A penultimate question. I recently recorded an interview with Jason Crawford from Roots of Progress that will air in the next week or so. In it, like you... He makes the case that we have to focus on changing the culture, including books, film, etc. How has popular culture became hostile to progress and how can we overcome it? It's hard to remember. There was a time where it sort of wasn't hostile to progress. Uh, you have to be, you know, probably at least a Gen Xer or older to really have lived through that time where it was hard to avoid it. Um, oftentimes in my, uh, uh, in my newsletter, I'll, I'll ask, I'll do interviews and I'll say, like, talk, you know, give me some examples of your favorite sort of pro-progress media. And it's um, I, then I have to say, but it can't be Star Trek because they always it's just hard. You have to think a little bit uh, to uh, to come up with examples. But, you know, it's, it's not just like movies and films. We used to be part, we used to do World's Fairs. Uh, yeah, there used to be a big, uh, a huge thing here in the United States. And some of the, and they would use it to not just get people excited about the future. They would show new technologies and how we, so a lot of people sort of interact personally with new technologies. Then we got out of that game. Um, and even toward the end, uh, we haven't had a, a world fair in this country since the eighties. Even then it was, they sort of became sort of infected by this anti-growth environmentalism and they sort of became sort of less interesting if you, if you're interested in an optimistic future. Well, I know, I think it, I think we can get back to that. I would like to like be be able to go to a to a world's fair that would show me like the wonders of modern technology and where we could go. Uh, I think I think that kind of like in person experience uh, would be fantastic. And and, and to, to have to to have to have not done that to have to have forgotten about like how we got here. Now immerse ourselves. Just the opposite. Uh, I don't see that how that some people say, well, it really doesn't matter with, with, the, with movies, the culture. No, I think it absolutely matters. If you know, I mean, even personally, if you can envision like what you, you know, a, a, a good future for your future self, it helps you to aspire and do things you need to do to, to make that vision possible. And I think it's the same thing with, with a society. Let me wrap up by returning to the first question I posed to you. 
we discussed how the reform conservative movement failed to secure political traction and ultimately Trump and, and other populists filled the political void. How optimistic are you that your vision of conservative futurism will find resonance and salience in today's current political moment? I think nothing would help it more than people believing it's actually possible. And we had a period, so as chicken or the egg, you know, in the late 1990s, the the acceleration of the U.S. economy was a, was a huge surprise to people. We had all these things which had been sort of lurking in the background, and they came to fruition. And then people started, you know, imagining, you know, these next steps, and that it would never end. I'm hoping that those building, those technological building blocks, at least, are in place, and that we don't quash these things, and that we um, that we continue to encourage these advances. And I'm hoping that the combination of real-world technologies kind of coming to fruition, plus I think this this geopolitical competition, and I, and I hope as a society, we can look back on the past decade uh, since the global financial crisis. That's a world of very stagnant, slow growth. What did that get us? What kind of society is that? And so what would another decade of that be like, or two, or three? Uh, I think we can point to what that looks like. Uh, so hopefully people who, you know, like ourselves can at least create some sort of image of the future that, that will excite people. The work that you do is crucial to that end. I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Jane Pathakukos, the DeWitt Wallace Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, I'd encourage listeners to check out your newsletter, Faster Please, and plan to pre-order your forthcoming book, The Conservative Futurist. You're an important voice at a key moment, and I'm grateful to have had the chance to speak with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.